Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and today me and the guys are taking the week off. We decided during the dog days of summer and the waning days of the summer movie wager, we're going to relax. Instead, I'm bringing you a bonus episode this week from one of my other podcasts called Culturally Relevant. On Culturally Relevant, every week I have a conversation with a filmmaker, writer, or artist who's creating interesting work or who is otherwise influencing our culture. This week I had a chance to chat with writer Brian Raftery. Brian Raftery has written for Wired, GQ, New York, The Ringer, Rolling Stone, and Entertainment Weekly, and he's just written a new book called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. It's a super fun and informative read that tells the stories of many of your favorite films from 1999. I spoke with Brian about how he went about researching the book, why this year held so much importance for him, and then later on, we each counted down our top five films of 1999. It was a fun conversation, and I think anyone who's a listener to this podcast will enjoy both the conversation and Brian's book. Make sure you stick around after the conversation for an update on what we'll be reviewing on next week's episode of the Slash Filmcast. Of course, you can always find more episodes of the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for more conversations like this one with culturally relevant people, check out culturallyrelevantshow.com. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Raftery. Baby, why are you shaking? Cole, what's wrong? Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? I see dead people. Brian Raftery, thanks so much for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, David. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on, and you've just written this book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Tell us about what inspired you to write this book about a movie year that occurred 20 years ago. It was kind of inspired by my feeling that the world was ending in in November of 2016. I'm not sure what happened (laughs) that month that may have prompted that, but I really, in 2016, I started really thinking about Y2K and 1999 and that whole strange era I was 23. I graduated college that year, and I'd been very aware of Y2K. I'd been very aware of kind of millennium fear, and I was very aware of pop culture. I I actually, my first job out of college was as an intern at Entertainment Weekly in the summer of 1999. So I was thinking a lot about that year, and I originally started thinking about doing a book that would go through that entire year and kind of hit on all these big milestones, whether it was stuff like Britney Spears and TRL culture or The Matrix or uh, real world events like Columbine. And so I wrote this big book proposal about 1999 that was kind of interesting, but kind of formless. And then while I was doing that, uh, an editor at Simon & Schuster, this guy, uh, Sean Manning, emailed me out of the blue. I never talked to him and said, hey, would you want to do a book about the movies in 1999? At first, I sort of thought, well, well, that's a little limiting. But then I realized the more Sean and I talked that Uh, You could write about the movies of that year and you could really use them to kind of view as a sort of a lens to look at Y2K or uh, or Columbine or teen culture in 1999. You could basically use the movies to kind of talk about what was going on in the world at the end of that century. And then also it was just an incredibly exciting year to go to movies. I mean, Entertainment Weekly that fall actually did a cover story called 1999, the year that changed movies. And at that point, I don't think Magnolia was even out yet. I think it was just based on the fact that you'd had The Matrix, you'd had Run, Lola, Run, you'd had Blair Witch Project, you'd had all these seminal films, and there were so many more even to come at that point. So I think it was a combination of wanting to write 
about the late 90s and that how that world sort of felt at that point. But also, I really kind of wanted to celebrate these movies and celebrate a time when movies were the most dominant form of popular culture. I see. So it sounds like it actually started not necessarily like as you're getting away from 1999 and as time is moving forward, you're not thinking back like, oh, man, there was never a year as great as 1999 in terms of movies. It sounds like it started from a different motivation of like that, just that overall time period. And then you kind of settled on 1999 as being a particularly monumental year for movies. Is that right? Well, I, th- I think my editor was like, hey, this was a great year. We should focus on this year and try to build in all these events. But you know, the, the book title, we didn't even decide until halfway through I was writing it. We didn't even decide to call it best movie year ever, which we put all these little periods afterward because halfway through, I was like, you know, I I love movies. I love 1939. I love 1969. But the more I talked to all these filmmakers for the book, what I realized was that 1999 would not have happened without The Wizard of Oz. It wouldn't have happened without The Graduate. It wouldn't have happened without all the president's men. So to me, it sort of felt like this was kind of the best movie year at the time because it was pulling from almost a hundred previous great movie years. It was definitely born out of wanting to try to make sense of the late nineties and also wanting to try to figure out how this kind of weird, very singular year for movie going happened. I assumed that the title was a reference to the Simpsons comic book guy, right? The best Uh, episode ever. You picked up on that. Some people have not. And it is very interesting. People like very earnestly yell at me about the title. And I'm like, oh, you've never argued online before where, <laughs> where it's very people. I think people who are of a, who are of a certain age uh, and have grown up on web culture recognize that comic book guy reference, which was very much the point of putting those periods after it. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly commenters who are just cannot get past that title and are would want to remind me over and over again that Stagecoach and Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz all came out in 1939, as if I'd never thought of that before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I've realized recently that so many of my pop culture references are derived from The Simpsons season one through eight, you know? Oh, yeah. But but that's rapidly a language that is dying. You know, like, it's not a language that uh, the kids today necessarily understand. So I appreciate you keeping the flame alive (laughs) with the title of your book, Best Movie Year Ever. As you're researching this book, I mean, it's a really fun read. It features over a hundred new interviews with some of the biggest actors and directors in Hollywood. You obviously have a great reputation having written for places like Wired and GQ, but can you tell us about the process of pitching all these people? Like, how did you get them to do these interviews? Because I assume it might not have been that easy because the project is not like, hey, let me promote your latest thing. It's, hey, let's talk about this thing you did 15 years ago that you may or may not have a, a complicated relationship with. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's very nice of you to say nice things about me. I don't think these people know who I am at all or had any <laughs> sense of my reputation. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't want to name drop, but um, someone I talked to very early on who I've known for a long time is Chuck Klosterman. And I was talking to him and I was like, I don't know if I'll do this book. Like, how am I going to get these people to talk to me? And he was like, he was like, A, people will talk to you because it's Simon and Schuster. And B, people always want to talk about like the best period of their career. And and he was right. I mean, it was I thought it was going to be impossible to get people. And it was probably literally thousands of emails. I mean, I had an entire year and a half long period where I would get up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. And I would either watch an old movie or the next day I'd watch the commentary track and take notes. Or I would just send 50 interview request emails out. And every every interview I got took at least... 40 emails to like to, to get them to say yes to figure out the time and all this stuff so it was a lot of just really aggressive hey i'm still here i'm still doing this book blah 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 but honestly for a book like this 
once you get sort of two or three big people and you can say, hey, I, I've spoken with David Fincher and I've spoken with Steven Soderbergh, then you're definitely going to get David O. Russell. You know what I mean? It's It does sort of feel like because everyone wants to be involved, but also these classes of filmmakers, and there's a lot of different overlapping classes of filmmakers, they were all in this year together. I mean, if you look at someone like Sofia Coppola, you know, her first her directorial debut, The Virgin Suicides, debuted in 1999. And she was in The Phantom Menace. And she was on the set of Three Kings because she married Spike Jones that year. So she knew Spike. She knew David O. Russell. She probably knew David Fincher, who, by the way, has a cameo in Being John Malkovich, which is Spike Jones's first movie that year. So I think the fact that a lot of these people kind of know each other, I think a, a few of them were at least emailing and saying, hey, did you talk to this dingling for this book? And they're like, yes, so I'm going to do it too. Um, but I also think they do realize that this is a very, you know, someone like Fincher, who I, I, I'm not anywhere near friendly enough to call him Fincher based on his last name, but someone like David Fincher or Steven Soderbergh or Kimberly Pierce, they are, or Sofia Coppola, they are big movie nerds and they are big um, Hollywood history fanatics. And they know what this year meant. And I think they realize now, especially how rare it is. So I think they wanted to talk about that time. And, you know, I think, I think they all wanted to sort of talk about these movies too. I think, you know, I had to cut a lot of stuff, but I loved talking to someone like Christopher Nolan and just saying, Hey, by the way, what did you think of eyes wide shut? And that's, you know, I had 20 minutes of phone time with him and that he just talked for five more minutes. Cause of course, who wouldn't want to talk about Stanley Kubrick's last movie from that year. Um, so it was a huge amount of, of grunt work, but I think it was a realization that this was a pretty special year. Well, first of all, Brian, uh, I think your strategy of, of getting the big dogs early on to, to hook people later uh, is a good one. Why do you think I've asked you on the podcast for <laughs> like one of my first six episodes? Um, but secondly, I'm curious, like you, you said like you had to leave a, stu- a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. What was some of the stuff that you that killed you to to remove from the book? I'm curious. I did interviews and wrote up big things uh, or big, sorry, big things. Very articulate today. <laughs> you know, things, you know how they divide yeah, the a book things. up into things. Yeah. Things. I had to cut entire passages on American movie, which is on my, I mean, we're going to talk, we're going to talk our top five list later, but that's definitely in my top 10. Uh, I love American movie. I love talking to everyone involved in it. I, it broke my heart that we had to cut it. I interviewed Mary Sweeney, who's one of David Lynch's longtime collaborators. She, she co-wrote and produced and basically steered the straight story. And I had to cut the straight story, which really kind of killed me. Um, so stuff like that, I had to, in the final months, final weeks, we really had to to cut quite a few things. And there were also movies that um, I just couldn't get to. I, I couldn't get into the South Park movie that much, even though I love the South. I'm not, I was never a big South Park fan, but that movie was so funny to me that I I saw it in Times Square and then I walked across the street that night and bought the VHS bootleg version that same wow. night. You know, it would have been a hard movie to squeeze in and I couldn't get, um, even though I got a lot of, I was, I couldn't believe some of the directors who talked to me, but I could not get Matt and Trey to do an interview about it. Mm. Um, so stuff like that. But I also, at a certain point, you have to just, with a year like that, you kind of have to cut stuff. I mean, I, I tweeted earlier this week or last week about Deep Blue Sea, uh, which I love, which is one of my favorite ridiculous over-the-top studio b movies but i don't know how you fit deep blue sea into 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 a giant book like this yeah uh what what was it that informed the necessity of cutting things though like is there was there ever a version of this book that could have been you know 500 or 800 pages and 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 like a an exhaustive compendium 
Um, curious why you took that approach that, that you did. Uh, I've got it. There's a version of that. It would have killed me and it never would have come out. I mean, we did, we did have some real, it was just long, you know, sometimes things are just long. I think, you know, the criteria for this book was for every movie we wrote about, I, we, I wrote about my editor and I worked together a lot on this and we discussed what movies would go in and out quite a bit, but you know, it had to, uh, the perfect movie was something like, um, to me, a perfect movie for this book was three Kings because you have a pretty compelling behind the scenes story. Um, but you also have it's a movie that is talking about that sort of represents where the culture was in the late 90s and also represents where the studio culture was in the late 90s. I mean, Three Kings is a very, you know, there's a very popular game online now and in podcasts called Would This Movie Be Made Today, which I I don't love playing because the answer is almost always no, this movie wouldn't be made today because 20 years is a big difference. But Three Kings is it's remarkable to me that this is basically a movie that calls into question the entire, um, you know, overseas policy of the U S in the early nineties. And it's a huge movie star with George Clooney. It's a huge studio. It's Warner brothers with a really decent, like 65 or $70 million budget. And it was treated like a blockbuster. And that to me is, says a lot about where the movie industry was 20 years ago versus where it is now. Um, and so I wanted all these movies to tell a bigger story. And I think I know specifically for American movie, um, I thought American movie did a great job of talking about what the nineties independent cinema had sort of, uh, had sort of uh, inspired. It's a great documentary about a struggling horror filmmaker in the Midwest who is trying to make his own horror movie. And I, unfortunately I, I felt that the Blair Witch Project, which is another movie in the book kind of told that story already. So by mm-hmm. the time I got to American movie, I just didn't want to be hitting the same beats, but also I just, I, at a certain point I had to shave like 50 pages down because you just, you want the book to be at a length where people will want to read it. Um, you know, I did, if I were Paul Thomas Anderson, I would have added an entire chapter of falling frogs, but I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have that kind of, um, didn't have quite that kind of sway or, or patience, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because you you kind of take a chronological approach in the book, right? You you start with the the first quarter of the year and then move on through the rest of the year. Um, but really, you're you're shaping all these movies to kind of tell a broader story about where Hollywood was and what it has become today, right? We lucked out with that structure because we went back and forth. But when you can open with the Blair Witch Project and end with Magnolia, and then you have, I mean, that's a kind of that's such a those two movies are such completely different sides of the coin that you can have a lot of fun in between yeah so we, we kind of lucked out by following the calendar you were talking about the the best prototypical movie for your book uh three kings i'm curious like was there a favorite movie you had to research while you were making uh this book i mean i love research it's all if i could just research book projects that's all i would ever do <laughs> i have i am i am in my office right now i have to my right about 50 1999 DVDs, most of them with audio commentary. Those are all being shipped off to Amoeba Music soon. Um, but I also have just piles, neat piles of Premiere Magazine, of Entertainment Weekly. I have the New York Times from December 31st, 1999, and the New York Times from January 1st, 2000. I love researching this stuff. And especially since everyone thinks this stuff is online, and a lot of it isn't. Uh, but Three Kings was certainly a very fun one to dig into. I also weirdly really love um plugging back into the phenomenon of the phantom menace i mean i mm. i never th- I, I can't believe I ever say this but i had an entire week where all i did was try to track down every harry knowles ain't it cool news um phantom menace article and comment about it like 
going through scrolls and scrolls of old internet archives and i just love that stuff i mean it's such a weird it's a weird mix of nostalgia and um just uh, it's like it's like a little bit of nostalgia and just a little bit of like realization of how we're not so far away from where we were in terms of talking about movies online as we were 20 years ago so that even the phantom menace was really fun and i actually had already done a story for wired about uh, Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks, so that was kind of that kind of became part of the book research, as well. But I mean, any of these movies, I love, I love digging back into them. I love directors' commentaries. They don't make them much anymore, but like those, you know, just to be able to watch a movie and then immediately watch the making of right away, I, I love that stuff. The, they, the DVDs were. The DVD market and the DVD industry, this book would not have been possible without them. Right. I remember when I first got the Fight Club New Line Platinum Edition DVD, I think. I think it was new, it was some crazy special edition, and there were four separate commentaries on that disc. Yeah. Um, with, like, David Fincher, and then David Fincher and Brad Pitt and Ed Norton, and then, like, the people who wrote the book. You know, like, it was all these people who were involved with it. And I, I immersed myself in that stuff right around the times that DVDs uh, were first becoming really popular, so... So I yeah. share your enthusiasm for uh, for diving into special features in that way. Yeah, and that's that DVD sold tons and tons of copies, millions. I mean, I think more than ten million copies, maybe even twenty million copies of that DVD. It was insane how they could. I mean, that was it was one of the great. You know, that movie was a bomb basically, and then it was you know it became a, a huge moneymaker on DVD. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Ain't It Cool News, and you're somebody who has covered uh, the entertainment industry for a while. I'm curious. Uh, how you feel like the entertainment industry has, like how the coverage has changed today compared to back then in 1999. Oh boy. That's very, it's tough because in some ways it's, you know, I, I think the star Wars chapter, the Phantom Menace chapter was interesting because it kind of reminded me that every time I think, Oh boy, this is just, we are so hyperbolic and so um, hyped up nowadays. Then I look back at the star Wars coverage and I'm like, Oh wow. I forgot that. Like, they would just put a picture of you McGregor on the cover and have absolutely nothing to say about it, but we would all buy it because it was star Wars. Um, you know, it's tough. It's very, I, I do feel as though I, I, I certainly think for, you know, the, it's kind of hard to compare in some ways because the magazines are all gone for the most part. I mean, premiere is gone. Um, you know, spin, which covered a lot of movies in the late nineties uh, is, is gone. Now Rolling Stone doesn't cover film to the extent they did in the late nineties. Entertainment weekly is now entertainment weekly monthly, which is as someone who worked there for many years, a lot of friends there. That's, that's very tough for me. Yeah. You know, I do think it was a little bit more skeptical back then, um, in, in general. And I, I, and I think it was also, um, you know, they got, the access was a lot less controlled. I mean, certainly when you read old premier magazine, making of articles by the late nineties, the studios had kind of figured out like, you know, don't just put someone on set for three days, but you still would get these articles about the making of these films. And you're like, wow, how, everyone will be fired if this story got out now. I mean, some of those premier magazine nineties articles when they're on set for three or four days, and it's like, you know, Gene Hackman chewing someone out or Francis Ford Coppola torturing Winona Ryder on the set of, of a uh, Dracula that stuff just wouldn't get out nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I, I recently watched that uh, Phantom Menace documentary. You know what I'm talking about? The one that was on the, uh, the DVD of the Phantom. Yeah. Menace. Did you ever see yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, like no, I used it for the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a, it's like a, a 60, 70 minute documentary about, I think it's called the beginning making episode. Yes. One, right? yep, and you can so, actually yeah. watch it on YouTube right now, I believe. It is, an, it is an amazing documentary, but it is extremely striking 
to watch that documentary and then watch like the special features of The Force Awakens, right? Because yeah. the Force Awakens special features are extremely polished. It is everyone had the best time of their lives making this movie and there was never any conflict on set. J.J. Uh, Abrams is a genius. And I'm sure, you know, J.J. Abrams is a genius. I, I actually do believe that. But I also think that filmmaking is a very challenging, uh, tiring process uh, and that it involves a lot of strong personalities and that conflict is inevitable. And it is fascinating when you have a chance to see that conflict in like the Phantom Menace documentary. And you just basically never really see that anymore, right? Um, no, I mean, and there's great, I mean, The Matrix has a great documentary. There's one scene where Keanu Reeves is trying to execute one of those flips and he's just, you just see him getting so frustrated and you really get this, You, it's like, it's maybe a minute of footage, but you get a sense of what that entire year and a half was like for those actors to just be trying to do this impossible task. You yeah, know? the Matrix Revisited, right? I think is. What I think so. Thinking. Yeah, yeah, Which and I think a, I also an ex like gold standard of behind the scenes documentary, right? Oh, that that DVD, that whole DVD when Warner Bros. put that out was fantastic. And you know, Magnolia has a great, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson just lets the camera follow him everywhere in the Magnolia documentary, and it's really loose and sometimes it feels edited, but not edited to protect anyone. It yeah, just feels like a yeah. really well put together. You, I mean, I learned a lot from those DVDs I watched. And that's why I said, I'd get up at five in the morning and I'd either watch a movie or a commentary or a making of, and just sit there taking notes. I think what we're learning from this conversation, Brian, is that 1999 was not only the best movie year ever, it was the best movie special features year ever. Yes. I would, uh, you know, if, if that was, if there was a bigger audience for that book on the history of DVD extras, Oh my gosh, I would be, a. I, I've actually thought at times I'm like, I should just like start a podcast where, you get the rights to old DVD commentaries and you get new ones recorded and you it's like a Patreon and you get like, you know, you, you ask, uh, I don't know, Guillermo del Toro to come talk about Rebecca or something. And then you get him to talk about one of his movies that isn't a commentary track because I would listen to that. Like, I love, love commentary tracks. I have tons of them that I'll never listen to, but I, I really do. I will still buy DVDs uh, if they have a commentary track for sure. Yeah, yeah. A C- couple of uh, thoughts on what you said regarding special features. First of all, uh, one of the images that seared its way into my mind from special features of that year is Carrie Ann Moss doing her flip in the oh, lobby yes. scene. And oh, yeah. she lands on her ankle wrong in, in like the first time that she attempts it. It's a very famous shot where you yeah. see her from behind and she like goes up on the wall on the side and then like flips over, you know, from left to right. It's a very famous shot. Uh, that's used in all the marketing for the Matrix, and the first time she attempts it for real, she lands on her ankle wrong, and I just rem- I remember watching literally like decades ago. I remember watching this DVD special feature, and she was so distraught oh, over landing on her ankle wrong because she had practiced for weeks, if not months, and she knew that like it would delay the shoot if she you know had done it wrong and. And yeah, it, it really echoed what you said about how intense the training for that movie must have been. Um, and regarding the Magnolia special features, I, I think I remember there was a whole sequence. I, I, Magnolia was one of my first movie obsessions. Hmm. And I bought the shooting script for Magnolia. And <laughs> oh, there yeah. was a whole like uh, sequence in the script that never made it into the final film that kind of explained what happened to John C. Riley's gun the worm subplot that like went nowhere in the movie, but like in the script, it actually was a huge part of the resolution of the story. I just remember him shooting that sequence in the special features and you never see it in the film. Yeah. You you know, he's shooting the worm sequence and he, and I remember him saying something like, you know, like, um, like he's praying to God to like get him through this shot because he can't, 
he can't get the shot. And ultimately, it feels like he didn't get the shot because it didn't make it into the film. So a lot, lot of stuff revealed in special features back then. Uh, yeah, and but, I think as you were talking about the difference between then and now, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I think we all, we very much have a false sense of like, quote unquote, behind the scenes images now because, you know, studios and actors use Instagram and it's like, here I am on the set. And those things are so polished and controlled and go through bureaucracies of publicity to make sure we get that completely varnished, unvarnished look at things. And I do think, obviously, you know, New Line's not going to put out a DVD extra that makes their filmmaker or their movie look like a look crazy or or unstable. But I do think there was a little more honesty to those whole to, to the sort of the, all those behind the scenes things you were seeing because the filmmakers grew up watching making of specials, you know, and I think they wanted to make their own. So I do think right now, I do think we're at a point now with with Instagram and like you know, Comic-Con where everyone's like, Ooh, we got a big scoop. We're getting really insight. And it's like, you don't learn anything unless they absolutely want you to. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very much, it's so much more controlled than it's ever been in terms of the flow of information from studios to, to moviegoers. One of the delights of the book is learning about all those things that might've been right. You chronicle mm. a lot of things that Almost happened. I'll, I'll just read a couple uh, that, I, that I took notes on. Um, Sandra Bullock was almost Neo uh, in The Matrix. Courtney Love was almost Marla Singer in <laughs> Fight Club. Uh, Spike Jones almost directed Ace Ventura. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Doug Lyman almost directed Good Will Hunting. So I guess I'm <laughs> curious, like... Uh, looking back, is there any what if that really stuck with you that you're like, man, I really wish I'd gotten to see, you know, if so-and-so had directed that movie or if so-and-so had starred in that movie, like what is your if only scenario that, that most stuck with you? Well, I mean, if Courtney Love had been in Fight Club, I mean, she was dating Edward Norton at the time. So that would have been such a weird movie to watch and such a different, I think, set. <laughs> I think that would have been a very different film. You know, I, there's uh, one of the best interviews I did was with, um, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who's not a name name, but if you read Entertainment Weekly or, or you know, uh, premiere in the 90s and odds, he's definitely he, he basically was like the number one, number two at Warner Brothers. And he had a great story about how, you know, the, the studio really wanted uh, Val Kilmer to play uh, Morpheus. And they basically the Wachowskis were like, oh, I don't know. He has this reputation because Val Kilmer had a very iffy reputation. And they, you know, they set up this whole meeting with him. And the whole and the whole thing was like Val Kilmer basically was saying, "Here's how you make Morpheus like a bigger character in the movie." <laughs> and I kind of watched it, and I'm like, you know, Lawrence Fishburne is great. There would be something very like late '90s Val Kilmer doing Morpheus would be such a weird trip. Like I don't know what because you just don't know what kind of Val Kilmer you get at that year. Like would he do it as a Jim Morrison kind of thing? Um, he was making some very interesting acting choices, so. I don't think uh, they went. I don't think they made a wrong decision, but that one struck me as kind of like, oh, that would have changed. That would have changed a lot about that movie. Yeah, and you kind of realize when you look over all these near miss scenarios, as it were, that like what makes a great movie or what makes the movies we love is so delicate. You know that there's just like a, a different decision here, and it would have been a whole different movie if they had like cast Val Kilmer there, it might've still been amazing, but it, it would have been really, really different. Right. So yeah, I mean, all these things are just a, com it's complete, complete, e even someone like Fincher, who's like, uh, has controls everything on a set. It's like, even he'll say, this is, it's all, it comes down to luck. I mean, it comes down to like some things you just absolutely can't predict. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly with casting, it's like, I don't think you can look at some of the movies of that year. I don't think, um, even saying like office space, 
that's an ensemble and that ensemble works so well. And if one of, you know, if Ron Livingston didn't work or Ajay Naidu or, or, or any of those performers, it just absolutely, it wouldn't have worked at all. It's like, you need to like those, all those guys in that movie. You need Gary Cole, you know, it just, they lucked out so much with casting and with getting these and with getting the right resources for these films. And I think it's because the studios supported them quite a bit. Yeah. I think the most shocking, uh, if only scenario you present in the book is Johnny Depp almost had uh Bowder's role in office space. Is that right? I think that, uh, yeah, <laughs> deep, uh, I think or they that, wanted him for it. That he was on the list. He and Billy Bob Thornton were on, on the list, uh, on the short list to play Diedrich, Diedrich Bader's role. Yeah. yeah Bader. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, uh, which would have been, it's also one of those things though, where, when I talked to Mike judge, he kind of remembered that it's also studios just offer things to people. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the spike Jones, Ace Ventura, it's like they offered it. It's like he was offered a Ace Ventura movie maybe at one point or the first one, I think. And who, who knows how seriously he considered, <laughs> considered right. that. I don't know if he was like close to signing and then he pulled away, you know? Yeah. You just, you don't know like how close it actually came to happen, yeah. but, but it is possible. It's possible. It could have happened. Could have happened. One of the things that's covered extensively in the book is Blair Witch, and particularly the viral marketing of Blair Witch. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on movie marketing. It feels like Blair Witch, just fundamentally as a concept, wouldn't be possible today. Because in the 1999 era, they were somewhat able to convince people that all the actors in that movie were dead. And that just seems like not a possibility today. Uh, and it wasn't, yeah, and it wasn't just, I mean, there were people who thought they were dead, but I think most people, I think even more importantly, there were people who knew they were alive, but wanted to be in on the fun. You know, I mean, mm. I certainly knew that that movie was not real, but I loved all that web stuff. And it, it it was more fun because you didn't have someone at, you know, tweeting at you every two minutes. Well, you know, that's fake. You know what I mean? It's like there was this kind right. of willful suspension of disbelief, which is what movies are carried over into the real world, which I think made that a lot of fun. I mean, there certainly were people when you look at the press from that time, there were people who were like, what, this isn't real. Um, you know, I, but I think that campaign succeeded more because it was just so much fun to pretend it was real and to kind of be like, I don't know, let's go see it and see what we think, you know? Um, but it wouldn't happen. That's certainly that kind of marketing, um, wouldn't happen now. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me when anything is kept, a secret online with it when it comes to a big movie nowadays. Is there any secret that, uh, has been kept recently that has really struck you. I mean, I- I'll say one that comes to mind, uh, and then you tell me if there's one that's comparable for you. But I-, I will say before I say this that I'm going to then proceed to spoil it. So, like, if you uh, haven't seen the movie and don't want to be spoiled, like, just tune out or skip forward right, right after I say the movie title, okay? But I would say one of the big kind of best kept secrets of recent days is. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan split, right? That's what I was going to say, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is a like incredibly well-kept secret that yeah. that movie was a backdoor sequel to Unbreakable. It, it seems like it is a uh, horror thriller, like, you know, um, small enclosed horror thriller, and in fact, it's a sequel to Unbreakable, which uh, it's it's amazing that he was able to... Like, the, the single thing that would make that movie the most marketable that they they were able to keep that from the public. Uh, I think that is a, a not only a bold decision, but a, an actual accomplishment in this day and age. So. Yeah, and I I think that, and I think that's out of loyalty to him. You know, in a weird way, I know fans have their ups and downs of them night, but I think this is a generation that 
you know, The Sixth Sense, which is a 1999 movie, was kind of their first twist yeah. in a way. And I think there's a certain form of nostalgia and reverence for preserving. Because I think that was also, I think that was like at South by Southwest. Like that was out. I mean, everyone knew in the months before it even was released that there yeah. was this big significant factor in it. Um, and I think, I think, I think that's one of those rare cases where he was like, look guys, you know, <laughs> please don't do this. And I think people actually respected it. Also, it's a, that, you know, that movie, that is such a fun twist. <laughs> I mean, that is a really, I saw it at a press screening and I, I remember when that scene happened, you see Bruce Willis and I just went, no, come on, you can't do this. And I loved it, but I was like, oh man, come on, this is so, and everyone was just kind of like, how dare you in the best way possible. It was really fun. Um, and, you know, and, and as we're talking right now, you know, uh, there's a significant sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that is pretty, not a twist, but it's it's more fun if you don't know about it, you yeah. know, um, and, and there's a lot of stuff in that movie that's more fun if you don't know about it. And I think you can see people are trying to be good about it. I don't know. I mean, I I also I'm very good at uh, I, I, I try to stay off Twitter, but I also I feel like I know who the jerks are now, you know, and I know <laughs> I know where the jerks are, I guess, at least. So. Uh, not a lot of stuff gets spoiled for me anymore. Um, I, I just am very careful, and I and I also try to see things on opening weekend, so <laughs> it helps too. Pretty safe. Uh, one of the things that was so interesting to me about Blair Witch is it was, I think, one of the only instances where the movie does better the less press the actors get, right? Yes, it, yeah. It created this kind of perverse situation where the people who are distributing it didn't want the actors to do any publicity because then they would reveal that the actors were still alive and that would ruin the whole illusion but they're still actors so they still like want to get the word out about their their name their career and stuff like that it just felt to me like a really interesting situation that doesn't come up too often in the history of movies yeah, I mean, they were listed on IMDb as dead at one point, yeah. and, it's, and and you know, uh, at the time, I remember, I remember when that happened and being like, "Oh wow, this is kind of cool. Look how hardcore they're taking it." But if you're trying to be a working actor, yeah. that's terrible. That sucks. It sucks. Yeah. yeah, it sucks. And I think those actors, all you know, I spoke to everyone involved with that movie, and I think um, those actors have have moved on from it. But I think it was a, it was a, a that was a source of uh, real pain, and understandably so, for many years to be in this huge phenomenon and then you know, you're not really allowed to tell the world or the industry that you exist until, you know, three or four weeks into the movie's run. Um, but it also speaks to how powerful that movie was. I mean, and how much people kind of wanted to believe or needed to believe in order to see it. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the book and kind of the bigger trends is the fact that, even though there are some really amazing movies in 1999, many of them didn't do well at the box office, right? Like, you know, you, you talk about 1999 as being like one of the last great years for movies that were challenging, that were bold, that were original. Um, but even reading it and reading how the movies did, it, it does feel like kind of uh, the dying gasp of the industry in some ways because many of the movies that people liked uh, didn't do well. The Insider, Fight Club, like a lot of these movies bombed. Uh, and so I guess looking back on it, like how do you feel about how the movies did overall in terms of box office? I mean, certainly, you know, uh, when you look at those movies in particular, I mean, Fight Club was not only a bomb, but it was so reviled. I mean, it was such a controversial I think when people talk about controversial movies nowadays, I'm like, I'm like, wow, I don't know. Fight Club was pretty, I mean, that was, that had people yelling at each other at screenings. You know, that was a very, 
very, very dangerous movie to come out, you know, the year of Columbine to come out the way it did with this very violent tale. And so it, it took years for people, I think, to kind of appreciate it. Uh, I, I mean, it had its fans right away. But certainly when you look at the box office returns of some of these movies versus their cultural impact, I mean... The Matrix was a huge hit, but Election wasn't. Office Space wasn't. Yeah. Being John Malkovich wasn't. I mean, do you know anyone who's a, considered himself a pretty serious movie fan who has not seen those films? I think even casual movie fans know who probably would recognize a picture of Tracy Flick, of, of Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. I think they probably, I think everyone knows what Office Space is. It was ripped off by so many places. So I think it speaks to what you could do back then, which is you had a movie. Okay, it comes out. It bombs. And then four or five, sometimes six, seven months come by and suddenly it's on video and then people start finding it. And then a year or two later, it's on cable and you have and there's no other competition for it. It's like there weren't 5000 TV shows to watch. So there was not YouTube. There was an Instagram. People caught up on movies. You know, I worked in a video store in the 90s and I'll tell you a lot of people just waited till video and but they saw everything they really wanted to. They wanted they felt like they needed to kind of see everything that was interesting or current. And I think those movies all benefited and they benefited from having the Internet. Office space was certainly helped along by the internet. I think the matrix as big as it was, was made bigger by the internet because people want to talk about these movies forever. They were very, very prominently discussed online and memed and gift and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I was shocked a little bit. Speaking of forever, I was a little bit shocked at uh, the talk of how long these movies played in theaters. Like you mentioned the sixth sense played for nine months in theaters, which is something that seems unthinkable for a movie to be in a theater for almost a year. I mean, I feel like I know when I was living in New York, get out played at one theater in Brooklyn, I think for maybe five or six months. And I remember thinking like, Whoa, this is like insane. (laughs) Six months in a fee in the, in one theater. Um, but it was already, I think it was playing when it was still when it by the time it had gone on streaming at that point. These movies could have remarkably long runs, and it helped. It certainly helped a lot of them. And they had, you know, like we were talking about DVD. It had this secondary market. Yeah. Well, Brian, it's been super fun to talk about your book. But why don't we actually talk about movies that you and I love? We've looked sure. over our favorite movies of 1999, and we are going to count them down here on the podcast. And I think you were saying before we started recording that your list changes quite a bit. Why does your list change? Is it because like you think about it and you you redecide what you love the most? Like I, I know lists can change for a variety of reasons, right? Like uh, maybe you want to give more attention to one film one day than another. Sure. Um, but yeah, what, what what's with your changing list? Tell us about that. It's almost always the four and five slots. The problem is uh, for this year, like making a top twenty would be brutal for me. So to make a top five, and there's certain movies. That will always be, I think, there's three or four movies I think will always be in my top five, but it's always those four or five slots where I find myself going, uh, today I'm I'm more of a this movie mode than this one. It's a pretty rich year. Also, the weird thing is, too, it's like there's movies that I love that aren't in my top ten, like the South Park movie or Deep Blue Sea. And I think sometimes my top five list of that year is maybe a little too serious. But I think these are the movies that I, I've probably seen the most. At least one of them is one that I know is very controversial for a lot of reasons. But I, I put it there because I, I would like people to revisit it or at least give it another chance. So, so I'm just going to say I feel a little bad because my number one pick, I don't think is covered in the book. You might mention it, but I don't. it's not one of the chapters. Ooh, I'm excited. So we're, we're going to find out soon. Okay. Okay, so my number five is Fight Club. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck 
You want me to deprioritize my current reports until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. David Fincher's Fight Club is insanely stylish with indelible performances and a subversive message about masculinity and how it chafes against modern society. One of those movies that really made a cultural impact with lines and moments that still resonate to this day. Um, there's memes online, you know, of his name is Robert Paulson. I am Jack's <laughs> Raging Bile Duct. And just the visuals. I mean, David Fincher is really starting to... Uh, he, he's one of the people that I feel like really understands the limits of what he can achieve with the technology available at the time. Uh, and I, I think he made really good use of just this really frenetic editing style combined with what at the time was cutting edge visual effects to create this really unsettling other world that Jack and Tyler Durden inhabited. So that's my number five is David Fincher's Fight Club. What's your number five, Brian? Well, should I tell you that Fight Club's on my list and tell you where that is? Would that, uh, would that no, help? No, let's, let's wait. Let's wait. Okay, cool. Let's All right. Leave great, the surprise. Great, great. Um, my number five is, uh, is, is this is very hard. I toggle between this movie or The Insider, and I love The Insider very much. And another day, it might be The Insider. Um, but I think Boys Don't Cry, which I realize now in 2019, is a very problematic movie for a lot of valid reasons. I really admire... You know, Kimberly Pierce, it was her first feature. She spent five years. It's the story of uh, of Brandon Tina, a trans man who was murdered. This is all based on a real terrible incident that happened um, uh, shortly, you know, that happened in the years before Matthew Shepard's murder. Um, and it's this movie is very tough to watch. It's not a movie I would put on a lot. Um, and I think, you know, what right now, in 2019 is that obviously the fact that this is not a trans performer, this is Hillary Swank in the lead role is very understandably troublesome for people. But I do think this movie is a pretty remarkable love story. I think it's a remarkably empathetic movie about um, family and about ad hoc family and about rootlessness and about um, just sort of just like the idea of, how you define yourself and trying to define yourself and how the people around you uh, for better or worse can sort of cause you sort of prompt you to think about who you really are. And it's, it's a pretty moving love story too. And again, I don't think it would be cast the same way. I don't think it would be uh, perceived the same way, but it's a movie that as I've talked to people about the book, I've noticed that some, some younger people are like, Ooh, yeah, that movie's canceled. We can't talk about that. And I was like, you know, I think it's worth at least watching before you cancel it. And I, there's a lot of complaints about the movie that I that I understand, but I also I think it should be judged on the merits of a late '90s movie that was very hard to get made by a very talented um, young filmmaker uh, who was really who was very gripped with this story and wanted to make a film out of it. Interesting. That's your number five choice. Boys don't cry. It's also covered in one of the chapters in your book. Let's get to number fours. My number four movie of 1999 being John Malkovich. Seven and a half, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. 
Damn, you're good. Spike Jones's movie is so weird, zany, and profound. It makes puppetry into an aspirational career. It features a scene with a hundred John Malkoviches. It makes Cameron Diaz look unattractive. Uh, I mean, there's there's nothing this movie can't do, and it felt like a perfect uh, melding of director and writer. Uh, I, I felt like they both kind of played to each other's strengths. Uh, and uh, I, I really enjoyed how random and how beautiful and heartbreaking being John Malkovich was. Is being John Malkovich on your list as well, by any chance? It is. All it right, is. But all right. It's not my number four. My number four does have a connection with it. My number four is Three Kings, which stars mm. Spike Jones. Music is high, and the spirits are soaring as these young. Did I just say soaring? Sir, this thing is restricted, sir. Get out of my way. Sir, Afternoon. What do you see here? Bunkers, sir. What do you see in those bunkers? Stuff they stole from Kuwait. I'm talking about millions in Kuwaiti bullion. You mean them little cubes you put in hot water to make soup? No, not the little cubes you put in hot water to make soup. Three Kings is very important to me because I don't think I realized at the time how badly I needed and how much my generation kind of wanted a movie like MASH, a sort of really stark funny anti-war movie um i think it's the best thing i i do love out of sight i think george clooney's great in out of sight i think three kings is a very different kind of film because I, I think it did kind of make him an action star that people so clearly want him to be but also he's very funny in it um he's it's he it's a great use of movie star power i think to make this movie and to make like i said basically a giant warner brothers studio film that's a big screw you to the bush administration um and it's really really entertaining it's 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 a weird combination of an action movie uh with a thriller with a comedy and it's it's deeply moving by the end um it i I really love it and every time i watch it i just feel like it gets better and better and very 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 timely no matter when you watch it i think that's a movie i was too young to really understand and appreciate back then and i haven't Mm -hmm. gone back to it since uh but that's one of the great things about your book brian is my favorite film reviewers or film writers are those that where when I read their work, it makes me want to revisit those films. And mm. I think your book really does that. It made me like, I, I really got to see The Limey again. You know, I got to see three Oh, The Limey's again. so good. Right. The Limey's yeah. so much fun. Yeah. My number three is M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. Mm. Uh, I think just uh, back then it was so amazing, the future that M. Night Shyamalan had for him. Like the idea that you would just burst out of the gate, you know, one of your first few films with The Sixth Sense, which is not only wildly successful, but exceptionally well-made, well-acted, and gave us uh, the greatest movie twist of all time. One of the, at least, right? Like, (laughs) if not the, then one of the greatest movie twists of all time. The thing that, like, when you look up movie twist in the dictionary, this is an example (laughs) of what it is, right? Like, the prototypical movie twist... Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic. I know there was twists before then, but like, uh, I see dead people, Haley Joel Osment's delivery of it, but also like that phrase and that idea permeated the culture so much. And I give M Knight so much credit for what he's able to achieve with this movie. It still holds up all these years later. Uh, I think the sixth sense is great. So I love it. Three great performances too. I mean, like Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette, but also just like a very restrained Bruce Willis from a time where he was not restrained, <laughs> restrained at all. Like he'd done all these junky action movies at that point in the late nineties. And he is 
really really good and his his hairpiece is behaving very well it's it's <laughs> it, but i really i really do i have a real fondness for that movie i grew up in, around the philadelphia area and so it, i that movie was kind of a big deal when it came out obviously and m night is still kind of a superstar in philly but yeah i i maybe that movie is too square for some people now but i i really like it and i think it's very as someone who's a parent it's deeply affecting it is deeply deeply about trying to make sure your kids are safe. And for a young guy who just had his first kid to come up with something that perceptive about parenting and, and fear is really something. Agreed. Agreed. That's my number three. It's the sixth sense. What is your number three, Brian? Uh, my number three is fight club, which could honestly, uh, on any, these, the next three movies, my three, two, and one uh, honestly could probably flip at any given day, but I love fight club. I, I know it's dangerous to say you love fight club because it's, it means you are, you could be, some people think you're uh, insane. I, I, what, what I like about the movie, aside from the fact that I think, uh, until this year, it was Brad Pitt's best performance. Um, uh, cause I think he's so good in the new Tarantino film. Um, I, I, I really love just how, uh, how spot on it was about consumerism, how much it was about, uh, sort of, looking at this time of comfort and being like, Hey, you know what? We all think things are going so smoothly right now, but actually have you looked at who's controlling your life? Have you looked at the standards you're setting for yourself? And it's deeply funny. And, you know, it feels very, very timely still. Uh, all, all the movies in my top three feel very timely now, but especially, I mean, this is a movie that ends with uh, credit card debt being ab- abolished by a bunch of explosives. And I don't think um, anyone is uh, vouching for that now, but it's, we now talk about getting rid of credit card debt in the mainstream. I mean, a lot of things in this movie that were very dangerous at the time are now seen as like, yeah, uh, big corporations are pretty terrible and we are too obsessed with advertising and yeah, we don't, we shouldn't have as much debt, but it's also just, you know, for all the reasons you said, it's, it's really well made. It's, it's two superstars at the height of their powers. I think though, again, that height, they're still kind of the height of their powers. Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. And just the idea of, of casting the most perfect looking human being in the world as this kind of irresistible charisma machine and then making him a complete maniac is pretty wicked. Agreed. And I, I think it's, you know, despite some concerns about its messaging, I mean, that movie just has a momentum to it that is impossible to deny. Can I take us on a little Fight Club tangent, Brian? Is that sure. Okay? We'll just say spoilers for David Fincher's Fight Club. So if you haven't seen Fight Club and you want to skip ahead, that's cool. But I I tweeted the following tweet recently uh, on July 16th. I said, quote, at the end of Fight Club, do Tyler Durden and Marla Singer die in the series of building explosions that's depicted? And the answers I chose were yes, obviously. No, of course not. It's ambiguous or other. Please explain. Hmm. Uh, And... You would like I, I would think that this question of this movie that is extremely uh, much discussed, uh, posted about online, uh, frequently watched, frequently cited as one of the best films of that year, uh, that that everyone would have already kind of resolved to, to like what the answer to that question is, right? Like everyone would already align on what they think the answer to that question is. Eighteen percent said yes, obviously. Forty-four percent said no, of course not. Thirty-six percent said it's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Of whether or not Tyler Durden hmm. and Marla Singer die, uh, I'm curious what you think about the ending of, of Fight Club and whether you think they actually die in that explosion. Because uh, it seems clear to me that there are explosives at the base of the building that they are in uh, when the credits begin uh, at Fight Club. So, what what are your thoughts on whether Tyler Durden and Marla Singer die at the end? Is it weird that I've never thought about that? Like, I think <laughs> you know. But here's the thing about 
that is a, so that that is a perfect movie ending and and like a lot of the movies of that year i can tell you exactly where i was when i saw it and who i saw it with and when i saw that for the first time it was a friday night the night it opened and uh i think on the upper east side i was so gut punched by that movie and hearing that pixie song i don't think i even thought about it i was i think i walked out being am i alive am i dead like right. i don't think i was thinking about the characters i guess i don't know i've never I've never thought about it in a definitive way. And I think sometimes I, when a movie has a perfect ending, I seal it off in my head. I'm like, that's mm. it. I, and, I, and I think just because, and that's also, I love talking to Chuck Palahniuk for the book. I interviewed him in Portland, but I haven't read, you know, he's done these, these fight club sequels, graphic novels. And I'm, I'm someone who doesn't, I don't read a lot of sequels or watch sequels. Sometimes I don't watch second seasons of TV shows. I really love I kind of like in my own mind being at peace with an ending. So I, I guess it's unambiguous, but I just don't know. I just really haven't thought about it. Well, yeah, I, I think several people pointed out to me that there is a Fight Club 2 uh, yeah. comic book, right, in which Tyler Durden is alive. So it does appear that canonically he survived the explosion. But to me, I always thought that he died in that explosion because at the very beginning of the film, you see the camera like go down a thousand you know, stories yeah. and yeah. then you see this bomb uh, in, in the truck and it has the bullet hole, you know, so you know that it's the same truck that they're in later and, uh, or the van, I should say, and you see it counting down. Uh, and so it, it stands to reason that, you know, when the, it's finished counting down, that it would explode and everyone in the building would die or the building would collapse. But I think that the ending with him holding hands, watching the buildings explode, and where is my mind by the pixies coming to life is so ecstatic that it really clashes with the you know bleak nature of the idea of them dying. Um, That's true. I think I also, that has fooled a lot of people. But yeah, well, well, it's also like I like those two characters. I want you know what I mean. Yeah. In my head, it's like I want them to survive, and there is a part of me that uh that just in my head roots for characters and that's just that's uh i don't talk back to the screen but i am someone who in my head is talking back and saying no don't know you know what i mean like i just i i, I kind of root for the characters i love to survive not because i want them to be around in a sequel but i want them to be around in my mind um so that's maybe one reason why i've never considered it but it's a very interesting point to think about yeah yeah and apparently something that is not resolved decades later, because I mean, I got like 1500 votes on this poll. So it wasn't, it was like a decent sample size of people, of people who are like into movies. You know what I mean? They're not just randos, although many of them are randos, but um, anyway. You should do, you should do Marcellus Wallace's briefcase next, but you should just make four <laughs> responses that sound definitive that no one will ever heard of. Like, what is the real thing in, Mar- in, the, in, the, in, the, in the briefcase? Is it as people believe a light bulb? Just make up four things as people are like, wait, what, what are you talking about? I've never heard that theory before. <laughs> All right. Uh, I will take tips from you on my next Twitter poll, Ryan. Um, <laughs> let's get to number two. I got to go with The Matrix. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? It's the question that drives us, Neo. What is The Matrix? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave born into a prison for your mind. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. Try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Cool. Hugely influential. Uh, It not only made martial arts something worth putting into action films, the results of which we're still seeing today with movies like John Wick, 
But it's a movie that contains countless allegories. Many people have read the film's story as a trans allegory uh, by the Wachowskis, but it could also just as easily be about breaking free from the constraints of society. Uh, I love this movie. I was blown away the first time I saw it. It's a movie that still holds up. I mean, a couple of visual effects are a little wonky, but other than that, it's still amazing in my opinion. Uh, and yeah, that's why it's my number two for 1999, The Matrix. Are you? So do you ding at any points at all because of the sequels? Because I know a lot of people who are who have told me that their love of the original was really diminished by the sequels, which I I don't disbelieve, but I find uh, that's not how I, I I you know I would never let a movie like, you know, I would never let a sequel diminish how I feel an original, but is that, did those sequels hurt your love of it at all? Not at all. I mean, Brian, okay. you just gave me this whole speech about how you, if, if you like a movie, you like hermetically seal it in your brain, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that it would be very difficult for a sequel to hurt a, a, an original film. I, I think there's, there's two situations in which that would occur, right? Number one is like from a story perspective or some something in the plot of the sequel retcons something in the first movie that makes it less meaningful or means something different or means something worse. Right, right. right. Which I don't feel like Matrix sequels really do. Like, yes, you know, you know I, feel, I guess I feel like a better example of that would be like the Terminator films, right? Like mm. Terminator Rise of the Machines, I feel like com- the ending of that movie completely undoes everything in Terminator 2, you know? Uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, that that kind of sucks. Um, and another thing, you know, honestly, a movie that comes to mind when you mention that, Brian, is um, Jason Bourne, the uh, fourth Bourne movie starring Matt Damon, mm. uh, where that movie I thought was so bad that it actually made me question whether I was in my right mind when I loved the first three movies, right? Like, I was like... This is so bad. Like, did I? Was it always this bad? I need to go back and revisit the first three just to make sure, right? I have a very strange relationship with Jason Bourne. Is that I saw a screening at a very stressful time in my life, and I just needed to see something I enjoyed. And I think it because I walked out being like, "God, that was fun." They're playing the theme song at the. I just like I just wanted to watch Matt Damon beat up people. (laughs) And I think, uh, and I now looking back, I'm like, I'm the only person who liked that movie. I think I was pretty clearly in the wrong. Uh, But it's (laughs) but it speaks to like. Sometimes your mindset informs where you are in a movie. I mean, no matter how much you try to leave it at the door, there are certain times where you will overrate or underrate a movie. And I think Jason Bourne is probably a time I very much overrated a movie uh, based on how badly I may have needed that kind of movie in my life. Indeed. I'm glad you got something out of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my number two is The Matrix. What's your number two, Brian? Uh, my number two is Being John Malkovich, mm. uh, which we already talked about. But you know, I just what I love about it is that I do think it's one of the most purely rewatchable movies from that year where it just it was on hbo for a spell last year and i was just like oh i'm writing a book about this but i'll put it on anyway i mean it's very funny um it i do think it's so ahead of its time i mean i i really think i think the first time i may have even heard the term transgender was in being john malkovich i think the first time i'd even sort of considered that a character can hear her to consider a character considering that may have been in that film. Um, but also to me, the idea of that movie could be about the internet. That movie could be about celebrity. I mean, it just yeah, feels yeah. so pertinent. And I think if it came out now, we would all be trying to debate what it's really about when really it is just about being John Malkovich. Nice. It's, it's such a rich movie. It's about 5 million things. And I think every time I watch it, uh, it strikes some mood and, and you know, it's, it's the best movie about, 
a failed puppeteer probably ever, I think, at this point. Indeed. Great choice for your number two, <laughs> being John Malkovich. All right. Um, number one. Okay, so this is the movie that I don't think was mentioned in your book. But my number one movie of 1999 is The Talented Distributor. Dickie Greenlee? It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together. Did we know each other? Sorry, what is it? Ripley. How do you do? We'll just be for a little while. No, I like him. Marge, you like everybody. Marge, you like everybody. You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes. And his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. What? Oh, God, I love that movie so yeah. much. I, I mean, none, of the, none of them would talk to me. I tried Damon. I tried Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm. I emailed Anthony Mangella's daughter, who's a big Sony exec. And I, it killed me not to be able to cover that movie. I, I mentioned it briefly. I love that movie. It's fantastic. It's definitely... And it's either in my top 10 or my top 12, depending on what mood I'm in. I, I, I'm totally with you on it. Yeah, this is like one of my favorite movies of all time. So it's like, great. it's got to be in my best of 1999 by default. Uh, I mean, it's one of Matt Damon's all-time great performances. Uh, he makes Ripley into a tragic character that you nonetheless want to see succeed. It's a character with a lot of darkness to it. Um, and there's a lot of stellar work also from Gwyneth Paltrow and Jude Law, plus some stunning cinematography by John Seale, uh, who also went on to do another movie called Mad Max Fury Road. And mm. uh, add that stuff all together. You have an all-time classic for me. Love how beautiful it is. Love the themes. I love The Talented Mr. Ripley. So that's my Philip number Seymour one Hoffman. movie. The Philip oh, yeah. Seymour Hoffman Philip Seymour Hoffman, that movie. one uh, of his amazing performances. That's right. And it's weird, that movie, because I was at... I remember I was working in Entertainment Week when that movie came out. And if I remember correctly... There were two problems with that movie when it came out that year that maybe it could have been bigger. One is that it was just a general backlash toward all things Harvey and the Harvey machine because I think Shakespeare in Love had won Best Picture earlier in that year. I think everyone was kind of sick of him, and I think that there was a little bit of a backlash against that. But I think also it came out around Christmas, and I think by then The Matrix had come and Mag- and you know Blair Witch and Run, Lolo, Run. And I think talented mr ripley seemed a little square in comparison mm. because it was so classically made yeah uh, and when you watch it now you're like first of all who cares but secondly it's like it is very very dark i mean and the novel i mean i love the ripley books i, I read them all a couple of years ago and just even the weaker ones i think are great and it takes a big risk by making ripley at all seem humane which in the book he's really just much more a sociopath but it's still a pretty coolly subversive movie and it's also all respect to the matrix fashion wise like the town of mr ripley is the best is the best costume wardrobe of almost, of any movie that year every every single look in that with the exception of matt damon's uh, swimsuit trunks are like remarkable it would look so cool even now i i love that movie i'm glad it's your number one i wish i could have really fit that into the book i heard the story that they painted matt damon like white with body paint the first time. <laughs> I think I've heard something like that. Yeah, I think that's true. Like the first time he shows up on the Italian beach to to draw a contrast between his body and all the other extremely tan people on the beach. Like he looks so white. And uh, I tried to find verification of that story. Actually, I couldn't find it. I think um, I've heard that. I yeah. I don't I don't know. I've I've he. There's a lot of good stuff on that. It's funny. I'm looking at all these nine, 1999 DVDs that I have to get rid of soon. And I'm definitely. That's one of the ones I'm definitely holding on to. Like I would absolutely watch that again. And I'm glad. Uh, I'm I'm glad your number one wasn't like 
cider house rules or something that I got out of the book. <laughs> because weirdly, the few times I've done TV for this book, they'll always do a clip package and they'll always put in cider house rules. And I'm like, no one likes this. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's you, like you, put you in the slam cider house rules in the book as well. Well, yeah. it's look, no look. It's uh, yeah, it's not a great movie. So but what's uh, your number one, Brian? My number one is Election, which I really Whoa. think. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. The next candidate for student body president is Paul Metzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. I think you did it. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. And do not often speak with you and ask for things. But now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow because I deserve it and Paul Metzler doesn't. I think partly because it was so unappreciated at the time, I find elections so – I love the novel. Uh, it's The novel is very different. Um, I love Tom Parada. I love Reese Witherspoon in it. I feel like it's a very warm uh, yet also very sort of serrated film. It's, it, it, it's very cutting at times. But I think what I like about it the most is that when I was 23, I thought – Matthew Broderick's middle-aged character was a complete loser and Reese Witherspoon was like this, you know, young nightmare. And now that I'm 43, I'm like, well, I can see uh, Matthew Broderick being a fr- <laughs> like <laughs> I can understand middle-aged malaise yeah. a little better. And I also I think also this movie has this movie is very uh, crucial to how this country and this culture treats women and treats young women and treats young ambitious women. And I'm sure when I was 23, I was nowhere near as enlightened to see just how you know terribly Tracy Flick, Reese Witherspoon's character, was being treated by the men in this world. I probably was just like, "Oh, she's a know-it-all." Um, and I think I think this movie is 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 very instructive in what the next twenty years of gender dynamics are going to be like in America, and I think to a certain degree of what American politics are going to be like. I mean, there's a great scene in this movie where all the student government candidates are giving speeches, and one of them just shows up and is like, "What's the point of this? Basically, burn it all down." And I was like. You, you take out a couple of sentences there. That's that's Steve Bannon in 2016. You know, mm. it's like it's very much like I think every um, sort of modern viewpoint on the electoral processes in this movie. And I think it's delightfully funny. And it's Chris Klein is great in it. Like Chris Klein, in this movie is one of the year's great performances. Um, I, I love every minute of it. And, I've, and I, every time I watch it, I just find it more delightful. Uh, I think it's a great film. I really love it. I will tell you that watching that movie was one of the most, like the first time, was one of the most traumatizing viewing experience I had. I went with a friend of mine from my church youth group. Hmm. Uh, th- because thinking it was a very, uh, oh, teen comedy, kind of like fun teen comedy, you know, like I thought at worst it would be, you know, Cruel Intentions or something like that. Right. Uh, but in fact, it's extremely adult. And, <laughs> in and, so many ways. Yeah. In so many, and not necessarily... Um, visually graphic, but extremely graphic in, in its language. Yes. Yep. Uh, yep. And yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I felt so embarrassed because I knew that my friend, um, who was a very polite Christian girl, uh, was oh not gosh, enjoying would... <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it would be it would be literally over a decade until like I, I rewatched that movie again and, and really uh, had a chance to appreciate it. But I think it's a great choice. For your number one, it's election. 
Yeah. And I think and I think uh, the reasons you underline there are why they had such a hard time selling it because they were like, <laughs> is, this a, is this a movie for kids? Is this a grown up movie about kids? And I think it just it I think it needed many years till people could catch on to how uh, how special it was. Yeah, I mean, watching the commercials for it, it felt like, oh, this could be like a, a fun high school comedy with maybe some adult aspects to it. Instead, it is like an extremely adult movie that yeah. <laughs> really you only would appreciate if you are an adult, I think. Yeah, um, oh, absolutely, yeah. So, too, and now I appreciate it too much, I think, some yeah, of the scenes indeed. with Matthew Broderick, yeah. Brian, it has been so much fun to chat with you about this has been great. your book, um, but also the movies of 1999. Brian Raftery has written for Wired, GQ, New York, The Ringer, Rolling Stone, and Entertainment Weekly. His new book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, is available wherever books are sold. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, David. This was great. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian Raftery. I was really grateful for his time. And if you enjoyed that conversation, I hope you have a chance to check out Brian's book about the best movies of 1999. If you want to hear more conversations like that, be sure to check out my other podcast, Culturally Relevant, at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. And you can always email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. This episode was produced by me, David Chen, and edited by Beatty Zhang. And next week, a little bit of a change in plan. I know we had originally said we were going to review The Boys, but instead, we're changing the plan a little bit. We're changing it up. Instead, it's going to be the Hulu documentary, The Amazing Jonathan Documentary. That's the name of the film that we're going to be talking about next week, The Amazing Jonathan Documentary, which debuts on Hulu on August 16th. So if you're a fan of this podcast and you like following along with what we're doing every week, be sure to check out the amazing Jonathan documentary on Hulu on August 16th. Next week, we'll be back with a normal episode where we review that film. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.